Welcome back to the Valley to Peak Nutrition Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Matt Nelson. Matt is a former colleague of mine who worked with me at a large hospital here in Boise. We worked together in the cardiac prevention clinic, which he heads. He's also the chair of cardiology at that same hospital and holds a master's degree in exercise physiology. Basically, he's got every credential you could possibly want to make him a decent authority on the topic that we're discussing today. The podcast you're about to listen to came about because of a question from me. And the question was very honest and very frank and basically stemmed from the fact that I saw people that I knew to be at the pinnacle of their athletic achievement dying in endurance races. It was both uh, several different scenarios locally. It was uh, nationally and it was several different things. So it basically had me reach out to him and say, look, these are the type of people we think of at the apex of their health. Why is this happening? Is there too much of a good thing when it comes to exercise? And if so, what's the story on that? And that prompted this podcast. In fact, so much good stuff came from this that I've decided to split it up into two episodes. So part one of our conversation looks at answering that. Is there too much of a good thing? And where's that line if so? Part two then dives into the second question of, okay, well, if one extreme is, and you'll hear this in the first story, people running 175 miles in two days. If that's one end of the spectrum, that's maybe too much. What about sitting in our chair all day? What does that do for us? Is that is the risk of getting out of our chair and engaging in exercise worth the potential reward of improving our health? And where does that line fall? The second thing that we cover in that second episode is obviously nutrition. There are many, many, many different wives' tales that exist about nutrition, particularly as it affects the heart. Two that come to mind are seed oil and eggs. You hear tons of different topics talked about with this. And so Dr. Nelson and I both sit down and we say, what's the over and under? Is there a good thing? Is there a bad thing? Should we avoid these? Should we not? So we tackle all of this broken up into two different episodes. And I hope that that makes it a little easier to listen to without so much information coming at you in one single episode because there is a lot of great stuff here so it it truly does not matter if you are someone who's into endurance if you're planning on you know if you spend most of your year not not quote unquote training at all but you go to the mountains once a year and hunt or maybe you do none of that and you just want to be healthier and around for your grandkids there is going to be something in here in both of these episodes for you. So if you don't have a pen handy and you don't have a piece of paper near you, I would grab those and get ready to take copious amounts of notes because he gives some great information. So without further ado, here's part one. When is a good thing too much of a good thing when it comes to exercise? I think a good place to start just to let people know who is this guy <laughs> would be just a background background information on who you are what you do if you want to throw in there how how you and i know each other you can but of course like i said i'll, I'll do a little introduction and then we can kind of um kind of dive into it okay yeah no problem well i, I guess uh, i'll start with where i am currently so i'm a cardiologist at san alfonsis in boise idaho and i actually chair the cardiology department there but I'm the director of the um, Cardiac Prevention Center and uh, Echocardiography Lab. Um, prior to this, I did my cardiology training at Mayo in Scottsdale. And while I was there, I worked with a very good preventive cardiologist named Todd Hurst, 
who currently is in Arizona, and he has started his own preventive cardiology clinic out there. He's independent. Um, I also work with a preventive cardiologist in at Mayo in Rochester named Jerry Gao, who's now retired, who was a great inspiration to me. Um, prior to that, I did um, residency at Wake Forest, and then my medical school was the University of Iowa. And interesting thing about Iowa City, there's more bars than churches, and I don't drink, so I studied really hard. I didn't know that. That's a new story to me. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, to give everybody a little bit of background, uh, Matt or Dr. Nelson and I worked together at St. Al's, and he had a great cardiology preventative program over there. And so we've corresponded a lot over the years trying to develop that and and just talking about general health and nutrition. And so uh, even a little bit of a further background of this would be that there was a, you know, recently I'd been training for some personally training for some ultra type stuff, longer distance type stuff. And, you know, I, I, I fully recognize, look, taxing the heart's not an ideal thing (laughs) and something like that, but it really, I think that's always in the back of your mind, but then it really started to hit home because I started personally knowing people, um, and hearing more and more stories of people doing some of these things and dying you know, of, of, of sudden cardiac events. And so it prompted me to think of like, who could I ask about this? And you were the first person that came to mind. So about a couple of weeks ago, well, I guess it's been about a month or six weeks ago. Now I sent you an email and sort of laid out what I had been seeing and what had happened and really asked like, what's the type of risk here? And I said, you know, let's assume that, um, a person's doing this at a relatively tolerable intensity is there too much training that the heart can or can or can't endure? And I think laying this out over three separate parts would be good. So one, the discussion in our email, and two, we may we may answer this in in part one. But what's the minimum effective dose, right? Like, what's the what's the least that we could get by with that that actually helps us? And then third is that over and under that we talked about, you know, for confusing topics to people on on heart function. I think we could visit that if we get some time. But first, just to lead with, when when is it too much? When does it become too much to where like, okay, you're you're potentially putting yourself at a risk here? Well, we know there's too much. We just don't know exactly where that point is. Um, Let me give you an example. There was a great book written a few years ago by Chris McDougall called Born to Run. And it was about a guy named Micah True. He was an American ultra runner. And he lived with the Tarahumara Indians in Mexico. And he adopted their lifestyle. And these, these natives of Mexico, they run, they can run you know, it's been recorded, they can run up to 200 miles in, in two days, and they run between villages. And he, he, Micah was, was actually recorded as running 170 miles over two days, um, at some points in time. So Micah is an example of somebody who was an ultra runner in the extreme. And when he was 58 years old, he was living at that time in New Mexico, went for a run in the desert and never came back. And they found him dead. Uh, next to a river and they did his autopsy and found out that his heart was full of scar tissue and they felt that possibly he had died of a fatal heart arrhythmia from the exercise which may have been caused by all of the scar tissue in his heart which they presume is from 
all of that ultra running that he had done over his lifetime. Um, one preventive cardiologist who commented on his life and his death called this a Pheidippides cardiomyopathy. And Pheidippides was actually a running courier in Greece. And he was the guy who we have named marathons after, or he's inspired the modern day marathon. And what Pheidippides did that kind of inspired the marathon was he was instructed to run to Sparta from um, Athens when the Persians were attacking the Greeks, which was about 150 miles. And so he ran there, ran back, and when he gets back to Athens, he's asked to go to Marathon, which is where the battle's taking place, which is about 25 miles from Athens. And he runs there, and then he runs back to Athens, and probably in the greatest attempt, or greatest successful attempt to get out of work, he shouts victory and then dies. And, and so we call what Micah True had a Pheidippides cardiomyopathy. Cardiomyopathy means kind of a, a sickness of the heart muscle. And, and um, you know, these two stories may represent the canary in the coal mine for people who do ultra distance and excessive, what, we, what I would consider excessive exercise. Again, we don't know where exactly that is, Kyle, but we do know there's an excessive amount. So if I, if I wanted to play devil's advocate, I guess I have two thoughts. One, that's an N of two, right? And, and again, I'm playing devil's advocate, not saying that that's not true. I'm just really trying to think of all the potential questions a listener and, and I have. That's an N of two and extreme ends of the spectrum. Well, one of them is the extreme end of the spectrum, right? 175 miles, 200 miles. These are crazy distances. You get some people though, who let's say that they enjoy putting in 40 miles a week, right? And longest run being maybe 13 miles, two hours, and then other runs are, you know, less than that is, and maybe there's not a known, but if you're saying that type of distance produces scar tissue that basically causes the heart not to contract and, and beat the way that it normally would, thus leading to the heart attack that this guy had had. Is there a reasonable spot where someone can put in more than a mile, but maybe not 175 miles? And then I think an extension of that is one of the... Um, so you, you had sent me a link in a blog that you have, and I'll link that same article in the show notes for anybody that wants to check it out. Cause you have a great, you have a great blog with a very funny title called the love dubbed, uh, is it the love dub blog. Is that right? Love dub doc, the love dub doc, right? So the heart goes love dub. And I just thought it was a great play on words. You sent me this article and in the article you had sort of highlighted, okay, well the big kind of the big, um, let's call it the big fault line is the intensity of the heart or, or the intensity of the workout. Basically anything that's low to moderate intensity, knock yourself out. You really can't overdo it. But when that, when that goes to from low to moderate into moderate and intense, now you are really putting, putting yourself in a, in a position that you don't want to be in. If that line's different for everyone, right? Like you got a 22 year old guy who's been training most of his life and he could run a certain distance at a pretty low to moderate heart attack. And like one of the things that you point out in the blog is the, the definition of that is the ability to say three, four sentences 
in and then take a you know a, a deeper breath versus four to five words and having to take a deeper breath. Let's say that a guy can go or a girl, whatever, can go a moderate intensity to where he's running, but he can do three, four sentences before taking a deep breath. Could he go 14 miles and not be in this category of the gentleman who ran 175 as a day job? That's a lot so, of information that we can come back and visit. <laughs> well, there's, yeah, there's, there's, there's two good questions. The, let's just put things in perspective with marathons and, and something you've said actually was the same thing said by the editor of runner's world um, a few years ago when cardiologists started to raise the red flag about extreme exercise activities. She said, well, show me the bodies. We're really not seeing people dropping dead all the time. And, and the reality is that when, when they look at marathons and death rates during marathons, there is about one in 100,000 people that die running marathons every year in the United States. And in 2018, there was 1.1 million people that ran marathons, which means there's 11 bodies from marathons. So one out of 100,000 is, is a pretty low number. The, the reality is that, that most people that die from exercise or during exercise or around the time of exercise they are the people who are the weekend warriors and not the habitual exercisers. And, and that's a key thing to remember that regular exercise is probably protective. Um, weekend warrior type exercise, maybe once every two weeks um, is not protective. And, um, and so there's, that's probably how I would answer your first question in regards to the, to the second kind of question you have about, about what's the right amount. There was a study done in Thailand several years ago where they they surveyed 400,000 people and they asked them about their exercise habits and, and, and they looked at mortality and they found that, that moderate exercise, the more you did, the more protective it became. There really seemed to be no cutoff up to about two hours in a day of you know where you got diminishing returns from moderate activity but vigorous activity when you looked at the at the plat at the curve so if the x-axis is time of exercise and and the y-axis is mortality you kind of began to see at about 45 minutes of vigorous activity every day that it began to plateau and that curve started to actually um, go down meaning that there was more mortality at higher levels of vigorous activity um, uh, on a daily basis over 45 minutes. So if you get, I guess I have uh, questions always lead to questions. That's why I love these. If you like, let's just say, I mean, right now, so there's a, there's a phrase in the, in the, let's call it the ultra community and really ultra being anything that's long distance. That could be skiing. That could be mountaineering. That could be anything. There's a phrase that says there's no free lunch. And the idea behind no free lunch is that some people's perception of developing better cardiovascular strength is, well, I'm going to shove a lot of really intense training into 30 or 45 minutes and try to reap what I could have gotten for long-term low to moderate intensity workouts. You're saying that those folks would be at a greater risk than the folks who are doing more of that low to moderate intensity. Yeah, the the extreme amounts of exercise and you know the mortality that comes with that we're only seeing in people who are in the vigorous range and if 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 we go back to the same question i'd highlighted earlier look let's take 
let's take a let's take a single individual and I'll just use the generalized term as a guy or man or whatever. Let's take a guy who is running because usually like you hear when you hear this, it's always, well, the person was engaged in running. But I think that there's a again, a line that exists there was what was the intensity of the running? Because if you have someone who's relatively fit, even though they are in the act of moving and it looks like running, their heart rate is not high. They can speak five, six sentences. Maybe they're running a 13 minute mile, something slow on paper but the motion is running. If they are in that, like, let's say that they are at, let's say that they're able to do that. They're able to speak four to five sentences. They're not just totally taxing themselves, but they are in the motion of running. Those folks wouldn't necessarily fall in the category of these marathoners that you're talking about have just died suddenly. Yeah, we we really don't see people doing moderate activities and higher death rates. Part of the reason may be, Kyle, is that it takes if you if you do 10 minutes of running, you've got to walk 20 minutes to get the same benefit from that as you would from running. So it kind of doubles what you do. But um, I don't know if that answers your question there. But if you were to do it, but if you were to do it at a slower pace, right? Like, let's say that you, you know, usually when people are engaged in races, they're trying to hit a specific time, they are pushing the envelope of of their thresholds. But if you have someone who's training with regularity, and they're not necessarily trying to push that envelope, and at a moderate intensity, I would ima- I would imagine, and maybe I'm wanting to hear that you're going to say yes. I don't know. I'm not. I don't. I don't. I, I mean, I want the truth more than anything. But th- so there's a there's a very popular belief right now, not belief. There's a very popular. There's a there's a heavy emphasis on and a lot of interest on zone two training that made very popular lately. Right, like so you get a, you know, you understand a person's maximum heart rate, which can either be tested or can be the age old 220 minus your age gives you your max. You aim or you train within a 70, 75% of whatever that number is, right? There's a lot of people doing that, which the ideal is, oh, well, that's a low to moderate intensity. You're not totally taxing yourself. You are able to you know, engage in this exercise and still talk to the person next to you. If they're so, if they're doing zone two training, the risk goes down. I would assume. Yeah, we have no data to suggest that prolonged moderate exertion causes an increase in mortality or heart attacks. Um, when we do stress tests on on people, well, when you when you exercise, what you're doing with blood flow to your heart is you increase blood flow to get more oxygen to your heart. If you have a blockage in one of those arteries. The more vigorous your activity, the more ischemic or the, the higher the, the need for oxygen um, occurs in the heart. And that ischemia or that lack of blood flow is what can trigger a fatal heart rhythm in someone. And that's when, when you talk about having a heart attack, usually when you have a heart attack while exercising, it's, it's not because you've completely stopped the blood flow to a part of your heart. It's because part of your heart isn't getting enough blood and it becomes irritated, and then it sends out electrical signals that create fatal heart rhythms like ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia, and that's what actually causes someone to pass away 
when you do a stress test on somebody and, and they're kind of halfway through it doing moderate exercise, their blood pressure is not very high, their heart rates aren't very, very high. And, and it would take a lot more um, exertion to create that irritation of the heart than what moderate activity can give you. So from a mechanistic standpoint, moderate exercise would not appear to cause, you know, that same irritation that vigorous exercise would. So we could, we, would it be safe to say the, there is a, right. And I understand that. I understand that the actual answer here could be a wide gap, but there is a range between sitting in your chair and totally smoking yourself on a workout or an exercise that you can live in and, and, and be okay. Right. I was going to say, would it be safe to say that the more intense you work, the greater the risk that that seems obvious, but I would imagine that somewhere between sitting in your chair, which is a very low heart rate, obviously, and taxing yourself is where you kind of want to live and do some of this. I I could answer this in two ways, Kyle. I could kind of talk to you about some studies that discuss moderate activity and then talk to you about where you start to get diminishing returns. Let me, I want to hear those, but first I want to go back to the, you, you had made a, um, you'd made a comment earlier that usually it's the weekend warriors at the greatest risk, right? And I wanted to tack this on to what you had just said a second ago is the risk associated with that because of exactly what you just said. Their, their heart is simply not used to having to find more blood like that. So they're, they put themselves in that position where those impulses get sent out and they have some sort of a heart attack. Uh, yes. The, when you're, when you do very little activity, well, let me answer it this way. When you're doing habitual exercise, it it almost trains your heart to be capable of handling more stress. And when you are exercising, you know, every once in a while, your heart isn't used to that and it becomes irritated easier. If you look at who's coming in with heart attacks to the hospital, one out of every 11 heart attacks is associated with um, exercise, either at the time of exercise or within a few hours of exercise. And when you look at who those people actually are, they're the people that are those weekend warriors that are not doing habitual exercise. Interesting. So a person, like, let's say that there is a, let's say there's someone who's sedentary, no exercise. They want to start though. Can a person build that capacity? I would assume, right? Because none of us just come out of the womb, you know, absolute athletes. So I would assume that as you progressively build that, right, which is spread out over a long period of time versus just jumping into it and all of a sudden becoming a seven day week person, but you're, you're, you're slowly and progressively building that over time to where you could get to the point where your risk diminishes because you're engaged in it with some regularity. That That's true. And we don't know exactly you know, at what point people cross into that habitual uh, exercise. It's all relative. Uh, and you bring up a good point. It's all relative what is considered moderate versus vigorous activity in, in people. And the best rule of thumb and this is used in studies, and that is, can somebody complete a full sentence without needing to take a breath? If they can do that, then that's considered moderate activity. If they can't do that and need to take a breath before they complete a full sentence, it's vigorous activity, and that's going to be different for you and me and you know 
Yeah, I, and I know. I mean, I in full disclosure, I mean, I I know some of these answers aren't direct. It, like one of the one of the most annoying but common answers I give is, it depends. You know, people will reach out and they'll want to know, well, can I do this for nutrition or will this work for nutrition? And my answer is almost always, well, it, it depends. There is no, there, there, there isn't necessarily a right or a wrong. And there are a lot of things that have to be considered before I can give you an answer, a, a clear answer. And when you have like one of the, one of the fickle things about all research studies in the medical community is you have to have a huge group to really give it any sort of a validity. But the group is so big that you can't know some of these, right? I mean, you, you, can't, you can't know, and usually you're relying on the individual to report correctly. And so sometimes it's hard to even rely on that data. Like my perception of being able to take four sentences would be different than someone else's. They're like, yeah, I could talk. Well, you're huffing and puffing. That's not exactly talking, right? So there, I, I, you are, I, I am... I am knowingly putting you in a hard position because I know that some of these don't have, you know, direct answers, but I think you're, you're doing a great, I mean, a phenomenal job of explaining this. You said a second ago that one of the best things that you feel like you could give us was to explain some of these studies that you've looked at in terms of um, what's the minimal effective dose and, and some of the other things. I'd love, I'd love to just hear what you have to say about that. Yeah. So minimal effective dose um, again, I'll go back to that study from Thailand, but they, they found an hour a week of running had benefits. So that's nine, about nine minutes a day of running. There are, are actual measurable mortality benefits to someone. Um, it, in looking at studies that look at kind of the right dose of exercise to prevent, you know, earlier death, heart attacks, or what I call the Goldilocks amount of exercise, I'll reference a study from Denmark and then one from the United States. But in the study from Denmark, they they surveyed hundreds of thousands of people and they found that the sweet spot for exercise was about three times a week running at a, an average or moderate pace. And, um, and that there was no real further benefit doing more than that. And the amount of time they spent exercising was about 30 to 40 minutes at a time. And that same that same data was seen in a study out of the United States that followed hundreds of thousands of people over fi 15 years. And, you know, what they found was three times a week, 10 minute miles and and uh, doing that for about 30 minutes at a time. There was no further benefit to going beyond that when it came to, you know, cardiac, you know, heart attack prevention. Um, if you want to know kind of the point where you get diminishing returns uh, with exercise for heart protection, um, they, they find that after about after about 45 minutes of vigorous activity a day, there's really no further benefit to your heart in, in going further. And then as far as moderate activity, there's diminishing returns after doing 100 minutes of moderate activity and 45 minutes of vigorous activity. So diminishing returns does not mean danger. It just means there's no further benefit to protecting your heart beyond that. And I think it's like, so a lot of, obviously we talk a lot of endurance on here. What I love the most is that some people that listen to this do not care about doing an ultra, do not care about endurance. They just want to be here for their grandkids. And so I think that, you know, 
inadvertently you've created a great line which says look if you want to develop endurance the key to that is longer time on your feet at a very moderate intensity and you just have to invest the time there's no free lunch but if you don't care about that investing as little as nine minutes per day or 30 minutes spread over three times per week at a very you know 10 minute mile is not blazing fast that's faster than what i run on the trail sometimes but it's not like you're out there just smoking people at all you improve dramatically your your risk of you reduce your risk of developing any sort of a heart issue and what i love the most about it is that's a very approachable number right 30 minutes three times per week that's i mean yes the one the one resource none of us have enough time of is uh, none of us have enough of his time but 30 minutes is is you're hard to say you don't have that it's hard pressed to say you don't have that kind of time in a in a in a, in a week's time so i think that that's a, a great point to point out Kyle, if we could get everyone in the U.S. to have a regular exercise program where they exercise three times a week, 30 minutes at a time, moderate activity, it's estimated that we would increase life expectancy in the United States by six years. And if you cured all cancer, um, you would increase life expectancy only by 3.5 years in the United States. So just that little amount of activity would have a huge impact. Um I mean, personally, well, the type of activity matters too. I don't know if you want to get into that. Um, yes, please. So, I mean, we, we often, you know, when you talk about preventing a heart attack or heart health, everybody automatically assumes that means aerobic exercise, like running, doing an elliptical or swimming. What we tend not to think about is strength training. And there is some good... Um, evidence from studies that strength training may actually be more beneficial than aerobic activity at preventing heart attacks. Now, the evidence is not as robust as aerobic exercise, but there have been some very enlightening studies done lately that suggest that that possibly may be the case. Um, in, I think the greatest type of activity people could do to prevent heart attacks and earlier death is, is really high-intensity interval training. And that's combining aerobic and strength training. And, and personally, that's what I do two to three times a week is I'll do HIIT training. And, and, you know, the medical definition of HIIT or high intensity interval training is getting is doing something for a period of time where you get your heart rate above 80 percent of the maximum predicted heart rate and then resting for a period of time. And that type of activity is is probably the best activity we have to prevent heart attacks. So two questions. One, you can use your personal experience, like what, what it is that you personally do, or if you know the data, what is the work to rest ratio in something like that to really reap the benefit? So my, my background too is I was, I got a master's degree in exercise science before I went to medical school. And so a lot of this stuff, a lot of the information I have kind of comes from that. And then my research beyond that, but I can tell you what I do. I do about 45 seconds of, of a high intensity activity. And then I rest for 15 seconds. And I do that for about 25 minutes. You can do anywhere from, you know, 30 seconds to a couple minutes of a high intensity thing. And then your rest period 
can be anywhere from 15 seconds to a minute. How many times per week? Um, I, I do this two to three times per week. And again, this kind of goes back to the data from Denmark and the United States where they surveyed all these people who exercised and found that sweet spot was about three times per week, 30 minutes at a time. So I guess two questions that extend off of that. One, could you theoretically argue, okay, you got a guy who's into strength training or a girl, whatever, into strength training, their working set takes them 45 seconds to get through, you know, 10 repetitions, and then they take a one minute break, rinse, repeat. Would that check that box? And then second, from a personal experience, what do you do? Are you on a are you on a rower or a bike putting out that eighty percent max for that forty five seconds, or what's your modality of training to to do that? So to answer your first question, would it check that box? The answer is it depends. I mean, it depends on what their heart rate is when they start going again. Um, I mean, if the activity is pretty taxing and they're kind of breathing hard and the heart rate's still elevated when they start their next activity, that would that would count. And then what, what do I do? Or at least I do body weight exercises. So, um, I mean, I'll do, I'll kind of rotate between jumping jacks, push-ups, squats, pull-ups, mountain climbers, planks, high knees, you know, I'll kind of rotate through a system like that, that I have written out for myself that kind of exercises all the major muscle groups in my upper body and legs. I am, I'm going to ask this because I know everybody's wondering it. So if we're going to, if we're going to play devil's advocate again, just a second ago, basically we somewhat learned the worst thing you could possibly do for your heart is vigorous exercise. And now we're saying high intensity interval training is the best thing that you could possibly do for your heart. If done within these, these time parameters. And if I, you know, again, I'm trying to think about the listener here. If I loop in the fact that a cause of heart attacks is the heart's inability to get enough blood flow to it, and this increases that risk, what am am I missing something here? <laughs> well, it's a good question. So I'm not saying that vigorous activity is bad at all. I'm saying that, that prolonged vigorous activity, doing that every day is probably not the best thing for people long-term doing that year after year after year. And again, if you go back to that study in Thailand, you know, they showed that 45 minutes of vigorous activity daily had mortality benefit uh, over 10 to 15 years. And so I don't think we should be sort of doing vigorous activity. I would be hesitant to do vigorous activity for prolonged periods of time every day for years and years and years. And I, I think that that's a good, again, like that, the, 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 uh, the best, the best, but the worst answer on the face of the planet. And a lot of this stuff is, it depends. And there is no clear line. And that's, you know, like one of the, I think that's one thing that people look for now, no matter what topic you're talking about, they want this very clear objective line. And sometimes there just isn't one. Right. I mean, and there are always, there are always outliers. You could have an individual who meets all of this, all of the criteria. They're at a low to moderate intensity. They are not a weekend warrior. They have steadily and progressively ramped up their volume. They've done everything right and still have some sort of an issue, right? There's, there's, there's always outliers and there is no clear black and white line all of the time. So I think this is great information to think about. 
want to be sure to say thank you, a big thank you to Dr. Nelson for joining me for such a great conversation. I appreciate his time and his expertise on the topic. Anything that we talked about in either of those episodes is listed in the show notes. So you can click that link and you can go check out more information about that at the link and uh, learn more about whatever it was that you are interested in. If you are interested in learning more about nutrition in general, we have a ton of free resources over at our website, which is v2pnutrition.com. If you are getting ready to head out first, I know the hunting seasons are about to start all over the West and Midwest and all over the U.S. If you're interested in some free guides that we have on backcountry hunting or hiking, etc., you can grab those at the website. If you're interested in diving down the deep rabbit hole of dehydrating your own food, we've got a guide over there you can check out. And maybe this topic prompted you to want to learn more about the basics with nutrition. We've got a uh, foundations course that we just launched. It's 20 weeks. It's self-guided. Once you access it, it is yours for life. You have a username and a password that will give you access to a boatload of resources that is on our website as well. Maybe you would say, look, man, I'm just here for the podcast. If that's the case, that's fine too. And I want to be sure to say thank you for joining us. It truly does mean a lot. I hope that you're getting great information out of these episodes that you can go use. It would be a massive help to us if you would jump in your podcast platform, rank the podcast, or send it to a friend that you think may be interested in it. It helps us to grow the podcast and to become uh, a place where people can get information about nutrition that they can trust. So if you want interest, if you're interested in any of that, please take it, check it out. If not, we will see you back here again in a couple of weeks. Until then, have a great week, everyone.